Hello, and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Jason Bates. In this week's show, we're going to take a look at product design in fintech and banking. We'll be talking about design methodology, approaches, and the best practices used by some of the brightest startups and the biggest banks in the market today. I pulled in some experts from the front line, and together we'll hear how they approach design and product creation in financial services, looking for what's different and what's the same. We've got Louise Smith, Head of Design for the Personal and Business Bank at RBS NatWest, Hugo Cornejo, Head of Design at Monzo, Rob Brown, Global Head of Marketing, Design and Responsible Business at BBVA, and finally, Domenico DeFano, one of the product owners at Revolut. To start the conversation, I wanted a framework that all of my guests could talk around, something we could use as an anchor for the conversations and something that would let the experts talk about how they approach design. I chose something called the Double Diamond, It's a super basic design framework, which consists, unsurprisingly, of two diamond shapes laid end-to-end. The first diamond represents the discovery and definition phases of product design. Your thinking diverges as you explore a particular problem area, spreading out to bring in all the research and insight you can find, and then converges to a definition of the problem you want to solve, something that's prioritised your brief. You then get onto the second diamond shape. You've decided on the challenge, and now it's time to develop possible solutions, diverging again, and then delivering them, converging onto something that actually makes it into customers' hands. And then you iterate from there. With this framework in mind, I put questions to our industry experts to find out how they approach this design process, something that moves from the twinkle in someone's eye to actually getting digital products into customers' hands. I wanted to find out not only how they design their products and solutions for their customers, but also how they thought about that process and how their teams are structured and what the context for their work was in terms of company culture and mindset. First up, I asked Louise Smith from RBS whether there's a place for design in a big bank. Design for me, the biggest part of design and actually for banks introducing design was actually quite a a big culture change. For me, design is about how do you innovate around the customer? How do you bring those customer problem statements? How do you bring new ideas? How do you take those challenges that we might have? We might have tried it somewhere in the organisation before, but it didn't work. So actually, how do we use design to bring that back in? Is timing ready or are we too early, too late? So all of those factors, and that's why for me it's a skill and ideation doesn't actually always work Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't get too caught up on that. Mm -hmm. So the methodology is the methodology. I think we all use a broad same one, Mm -hmm. double diamonds, ideation, discovery, developing out the ideas, rapid, all these things. But I think it's more the behaviour, the environment and the leadership. So, I mean, most banks are wrestling with how do you shift away from product lines and distribution lines, actually. But how do you manage end-to-end customer journeys and end-to-end experiences? But actually, what I think is exciting about that is you don't just think about what you're going to change in the experience or what you're going to innovate around the experience, but also how you run the experience on a day-to-day basis. I think the the areas that we wrestle with still, particularly within design type of phases, is those areas of how do you stop unconscious bias? How do you stop your own viewpoints coming to the table? Mm-hmm. And actually leaving, how I describe it, the hierarchy, the kind of positions at the door, we don't follow any strict, um, you know, uh, guidelines or design system. 
This is Domenico Defano from Revolut. What's really important at Revolut is, I think, to be very focused on what we do and to um, really quickly uh, go to market, test ideas, and then move on if something doesn't work and double down on what works. It's definitely not a top-down uh, approach in terms of what to build. What we think about is what problem do we solve for the, the, the customer, for the user? The customer is only going to use your product if it saves them time, it saves them money, it, it does something that's better than other products. And even then, it's not going to be easy because people are constantly bombarded by information. So they have to find you, they have to include your product into their daily life that's a really really tough job and you can only do that if you're providing something very valuable i asked rob brown from bbva what he thought on whether design was really changing financial services i've been around design almost my entire career um, but you're absolutely right in the financial industry it's changing dramatically and I think we're finally aware and awake to the benefit of talking to customers on a daily basis. And the reality is that that's how we're building our products today here at BBVA. And you know, there's a ton of speak about doing that in all financial institutions, but we do it here. We have an entire research team based in the design team. And all they do all day long on every product and every project is talk to customers. And so for us, that's, that's the critical component to building, you know, world-class apps or building world-class services is day-to-day -day conversations with the, the regular people, as well as the corporates and client side to ensure we're delivering great products. It's a cultural shift, you know, and, and it's a top leadership level uh, recognition that things are different now, that the best ideas aren't going to come necessarily from the CEO and the chairman all the time. They're going to come from pain points with customers. So we've got to focus on solving problems for customers that seems to permeate throughout these organizations. As Louise mentions, this leads to a leadership change and a cultural shift away from that top-down autocratic decision-making process. And as Rob points out, solutions and ideas don't just come from the chairman anymore. They come from customers themselves and their pain points. Likewise, I've seen firsthand that banking organisation structures are moving away from those traditional silos with a digital team for each banking product, credit cards, mortgages, current accounts, lending. How do these four players structure their teams? I asked Louise first. So that's traditionally how we've been structured. So you would have looked at a typical retail bank and you would have seen all of those product business areas that you've articulated with centres of excellence around things like pricing, um, conduct risk, etc. So you would have seen that typically. We're starting to move away from that and set up what we've called customer business areas. So I don't want a mortgage, I want to buy a home. I don't want to look at my business or my startup or my small business different to the way in which I interact with my personal accounts for short-term borrowing or instalment lending, all of those type of things. So we're starting to group those customer experiences as experiences rather than products. And we're, we're right in the middle of that pivot within the organisation and then looking actually at channels as 
the kind of enabling capabilities rather than just distribution and just product. So most of our feature teams or sales or pods or they're broadly around eight to 10 people, which is why we release so fast now around mobile. We're still not where we want to be and it probably wouldn't be fast in your eyes, but six weeks for us is really fast. (laughs) So I think for us, it's about... How do we constantly drive that to we're at a point where we can release as often as we want to Mm. rather than there's any constraint within it? Not necessarily that we need to or should do, but that those blockers are gone. So um, we keep the team small. Um, we we build the expertise in constantly. So we're constantly looking at how do we evolve? How do we learn? Rob Brown also spoke about small interdisciplinary teams. So the first is our triangle. The triangle we, again, don't start any project or any service, product, nothing without those three components of the triangle in place. On one point, we have the design and the data scientists. On the other, we have the engineering and technology folks. And then lastly, the, the product and, uh, and business owner for, for it. Um, some would call it a project manager. And so we obviously move people in and out depending on the cycle, the life cycle of the, the development. But in general, we won't start anything without that. We have creation teams. And you know, you, you and I have talked about this in the past. We've got teams of people with, uh, with skill sets across engineering, technology, design, and all aspects and disciplines of design, as well as product managers who might come from years of experience within a particular product like credit cards or, or loans. Um, and they work as a, an agile Uh, roll up your sleeves team where when we talked earlier about the research side, that doesn't mean only the researchers within design do research. That means that team does it and they're all involved and engaged in talking to to the customers. It's refreshing and great to work in an organization that's broken down those and and focused on good products. My good friend Hugo from Monzo also spoke about the benefits of these small team working practices. So our team is still way, way smaller than any legacy bank. And that also helps you or allows you to work in a different way. You need to count your battles very, you know, very thinly and to decide what you, what you want to do. And finally, Domenico DeFano made it unanimous. So there's usually small cross-functional teams. Uh, that's, that's the way we like to do it. And actually the idea is that each team should be, each product team acts as a kind of startup in the startup so there's a product owner there's a designer and then front-end back-end developers mobile developers depending on what's needed for the product but the team is fully responsible for um for their own area of the product which means starting with uh gathering the feedback and the uh, the information and then prioritizing uh items and then delivering them um, and that's really powerful, I think, because there's really uh, little, um, not that many rules to follow or that many meetings at all, actually. And each team is really responsible for what they do. And that creates a lot of engagement in, uh, in the team and also yeah, makes everyone more effective. So far, so good. There's a push away from hierarchical structure and the teams are set up around how to get the best outcome for their customers. But how do they identify those customer problems that they need to solve? And what are the sources of those problems? Where do their ideas come from? Is it internal thinking only, customer feedback, use testers, or all of those things? 
exploring the possible problems to solve, is the first part of our double diamond and the first part of a design project, the discovery phase. I asked Hugo from Monzo where they got their inspiration from. There's, there's from many places, right? Like there's tons of research. So we have two user researchers in the team and they're very, very diligent about trying to understand what's uh, in an unbiased way, what are the actual problems and how people manage their money. That's one. Another one is uh, our community. So we are community-driven. We have a community forum where there's tons of content and advocates and people telling us, hey, this is this is painful, right? <laughs> and now we know what we need to solve. And there's also kind of like company strategy. Like we know the things we want to do. We, we know that in order to fulfill our mission, we need to, to do certain things, potentially in a certain order. So that also has uh, tons of uh, impact. And then uh, customer support as well. So our customer support is, is uh, my opinion, very, very good. And the relationship with our customers kind of enables that cycle of uh, feedback. Yeah, things that you wouldn't tell your legacy bank, I think, because you, you would think that ah, they don't care. They are not going to improve anyway. Like Monzo, Revolut employees are users too. So internally, a lot of product-based feedback can be gained. As Domenico explains. Revolut has, well, I guess also other um, challenger banks uh, have the advantage uh, in the fact that we actually use our product internally. And that's been really helpful uh, in the past. And it still is because most of the time, what we need to focus on is very clear. Uh, when you have uh, the whole office uh, and all our friends using Revolut, you immediately see what's the next step, what's the thing that people really need. We also have external channels, you know, lots of ways to communicate with, with customers, starting from the support, but also the uh, the community forums and, and then all the people that meet customers uh, more frequently, and then they just send those ideas over. We have a really huge backlogs of ideas. Uh, I would say there's a little bit more of an issue in prioritizing them. Domenico's comment about the problem of prioritization leads us to the next part of the double diamond process, the define stage. This is where we whittle down the possible problems into one or a few that we plan to focus on, something we can really get our teeth stuck into. But how do we do that? How do you decide what to focus on first? Who decides? Rob Brown. We outline KPIs to ensure they're successful, of course. I mean, we're a financial institution, we're a business, and um, and that's that's critical. But but we're willing to take bets on things that we don't know necessarily if they're going to be uh, revenue generators. And the ones I've mentioned aren't necessarily revenue, but they're creating an interaction with a customer or a non-customer that then allows us to work on the things that will give us revenue. We have a process here we call the SDA. I really hate acronyms, but I'm going to explain it to you because it's it's actually quite good. It's a single development agenda. So my previous financial institutions, we would have hundreds and hundreds of projects we were working on. And some of those would go on for years and years and years and never launch. And and we don't have that here. Mm -hmm. uh, and the way we prioritize those is based on those criteria that we talked about earlier. KPIs for sure, but we look at our customer pain points on a daily basis. How do we develop services and products around those? And then Jason, if in three months we don't show real progression then we do an agile quarterly review and it could get killed or we continue with funding for it if it makes sense and it's progressing well. So that that's effectively our prioritization model here. And it's not designers sitting in a room prioritizing, it's the whole organization. It's driven by finance team, but creators, 
senior leaders and, uh, and our design team are all focused on figuring out what's the right products to work on. Louise explains how it works at RPS. So we work hard around any of our early stages of design to get the right people in. And in fact, it's well thought through. So even though it might look a bit chaotic, it actually is well thought through about who do we have in the room, including sponsors, the operational experts. I found that the biggest change that we've made is bringing those colleagues who understand the processes because actually we found particularly within the organization they're also the most disruptive Mm. around what we do in fact they're constantly looking at changing everything that they do replacing it and moving on to the next thing which is is not always typical so we work hard at the leaders who drive those sessions the people in the construct within the room and also how do we ensure those ideas have room to breathe before they're killed? I don't think we're there yet, but we're certainly, I think as we start to tilt towards business areas, you can see the areas that you need to start to address with data. But we also look at, in a targeted way, which areas do we actually want to accelerate or innovate on? So which areas do we test, but which areas do we really want to go after? Firstly, around decisioning. So I think one of our biggest challenges of Big Bank is driving decisions at pace. And that probably isn't unique to banks. I think that's, that's a challenge in a number of organisations. So decision is one area we really focus on in the design process is making decisions testing them and iterating them. I think the other thing is, is that having that, who are the people who are going to run this when we actually develop, deliver it, build it, sorry, and test it into implementation is having those all the way through the process, but also part of that decision-making. So we, we are going through that process of testing, decisioning and iterating, and we're starting to get better But I think that's the biggest area we need to focus on as a bank is confidence around testing ideas early, making a decision. And then once we've got something is getting it live and then iterating as we go rather than pulling back, wait, get it perfect, then go. Here's Hugo. There's problems that are bigger problems, but that the solution requires way, way more work. And and there's no way you can avoid it. Um, there's cases where you might even need third parties and it's not in your control. Like, you know, you might want to have some kind of NFC wallet that is controlled by a certain provider and you cannot have access to that unless they want it, right? Or you need to play by those rules. That makes it another, another area to, to prioritize. How easy it is to put together a first solution, an MVP. That's something that we always try. Like we try to release something early, small, see how it works, evolve it. There are certain problems that you cannot afford that. In order to solve them, you need to go big. We tend to be careful with those. Like We try to not like bet the farm on something unless we really, really want to do it. And it's a bit like economy of uh, like, like firepower. Yeah. The goals that they are working towards too are defined by the company, right? When the company is not like a different entity, right? It's us, like everybody. We do things like um, we define our goals quarterly. Actually, we published them uh, recently, so you can uh, go and read them in, in the blog. And with those goals, um, every product team, they know what they need to, to optimize for. And it's up to them to decide what changes in the product they are going to do in order to hit those goals. 
And finally, we hear from Domenico about Revolut's approach. As we say, we really, uh, we really try to focus on what's important. And that's really, really helpful because we just think, okay, we have this list of 10 things, but which one is going to bring the number of users to, I don't know, 10 times what we have today? What's going to really make people love our product uh, more than their current bank? Um, and usually, even if you have 20 items and all of them are good and legitimate problems and sure. jobs that the customer is trying to solve, there's a few, very few of them that have this potential of saying, okay, these are really the, the biggest problems, the biggest roadblocks. And we really just try to focus on those. Uh, so it's a lot about uh, saying no, actually, and saying this is not going to move the needle uh, that much. Um, it's maybe a nice to have, or maybe it's going to be bigger need um, some point in the future. But right now we need to be doing this thing because this is what really matters. So now the teams have whittled down what they want to focus on, whether that's due to company goals or KPIs, pressing needs like something that just needs fixing, or simply what they think will make the biggest difference for their customer. Now they have their key problems to solve, but what happens next? How do these things change from post-it notes of possible solutions to a real product? For this, we move into the third stage of the double diamond, the develop stage. This is where the designers really start to create real world solutions or concepts to solve the problems they've identified, ready for iterating, building, testing. So how's it done? How do these people get to that first version? Having started a few companies and launched a few products myself, I'm interested to hear their approaches. How did they work on their solutions? Who did that work? And what are the other teams that are involved? We don't really like, uh, you know, taking a, a handbook and say, this is how it should be done. Sure. Uh, we really say, okay, this is a good idea. Let's try how it works. And then we adjust to our own uh, structure. And if it doesn't work, we just scrap it and, and, and uh, try something else. We really put a lot of effort on uh, logic and reasoning and, uh, and actually to really hands-on uh, you know, experience. It's really about trying things and being very critical about does this work? Does this achieve any any uh, result? Uh, if not, then doesn't matter. It's not about who suggested the idea or um, it, it's really about making things work. We have actually the same approach to QA. Uh, so once we develop, for example, okay, we, we have a very strong culture on MVPs. Uh, so you know, once we define the solution, we try to build the minimum, let's say, viable uh, version of the product that still delivers the value, right? It, it's not just about, ah, yeah, uh, our MVP has two buttons and two screens. And it's like, okay, but this is crap. Like nobody will want to use that. Yeah. It's just about not only getting the minimum viable um, solution in terms of uh, uh, development effort, but it's about the one that really delivers a value that is, you know, better than anything else that's on the market. I think also having uh, good people uh, helps because you can go to a, a person that has experience in compliance and tell you, hey, uh, we had this great idea. We want to develop this solution. And they will just tell you, no, that, that's not possible. Uh, you can't do that. The challenge here is to say, okay, 
So let's try to see whether there's a way of doing this. Uh, maybe you can, you know, uh, negotiate a bit on, on some of the things that you would like to achieve, but usually there's always a solution that allows you to, uh, to create the solution you want, but, but still uh, stay well in the regulatory terms. There's other cases where it's more like a snagging list of things to solve. There's other cases in which you kind of stop everything and you focus just on that. So I don't think I don't think there's a, like a methodology uh, as such. Um, I think it's about like communication and trying to identify what people like and what different people, what are their communication styles, preferences, and and the rest of the team. Like let's think think about all the different players there, right? Like researchers, designers, product managers, engineers of front end and back end, different platforms, data analysts. At the end, it's, it's almost like an orchestra, right? Like there's tons of people there. So I think it depends uh, kind of on the piece of work. For us, we, for example, we don't do distinction of UX designers and UI designers. We talk about product designers. Um, that for us is someone that can convert business needs and user needs into pixels or into solutions. So with that kind of mindset, every designer does whatever they, they need, right? Like there's people that think very visually and they start almost with a solution and then they diverge from there. There's people that simulate many scenarios in their heads and they don't need to plot them in order to simulate them. And then whatever they actually plot or sketch is very close to a very good solution because, um, yeah, that is their way of working. If you are a big, big organization and you have 300 designers, I can I can understand why they need to you know, lock things down and to say, hey, this works this way. This is the process. This is the output. This is the kind of like delivery. Because if not, it would be very, very difficult to even to manage performance. In our case, because we're still very small, we can get away with not needing so many, so much process and kind of focus more on the, on the actual outcome and iterate over that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have methodologies that we put in place across design that we're using. Uh, we kind of developed it across all the countries. There are cultural nuances in each country that require us to have slightly different uh, creation process. But in general, um, we believe in, in a methodology that starts with the research of the full team and prototyping and prototyping with additional customer and client feedback and then development of the, the product. And then you know, look, that team doesn't just step away once it's in the market. That team can stay on for the progression of the product over years and years to continue to develop it and enhance it in the same way you have your updates on your apps on your phone for any other products. It's the, the same here at, at BBVA. And the direction of new products and new services is 100% run within our group. And so, again, you know, because we're a creation shop, we're a creation company. It doesn't matter if you're a shaper, so you're a lawyer or in the procurement team, or if you're part of the creation of a, a new product, you're, you're directly influenced by what happens in, in customer and client solutions. That's very different than my experience in past financial institutions, where you mentioned sort of siloed environments where CEO of credit cards is dictating what happens in the credit card business. We don't have that here. We have a creation process across all business lines, and it's the same across all of them and directly run by one, one gentleman. So it's a different process here. It's, uh, it's successful. 
Louise mentioned earlier that getting to market and releasing in six weeks is fast for RBS. It's, it's a real achievement. But for fintechs, for new players, fast speed releases, well, it's what they were designed for. This speed of getting to market is a huge competitive advantage. New players can come up with an idea, test it internally, and release those products in beta, allowing customers to test and develop new solutions with them in real-life situations, feeding back into that ongoing design process. By contrast, big banks are often slower to get to market with more stringent in-house testing, regulation, compliance, governance, a whole host of things that just slow them down. But this is Rob Brown talking about the mantra of 369 at BBVA. And so the 369 is we want that team in place within three days, because obviously we're, we're, mo- we're moving very fast here. We want agile teams put in place quite quickly. Three days team is in place. Within six weeks, we want our first prototype uh, to, to review internally and to share with customers. And that prototype could be a piece of paper on a wall with a beautiful mapped out user experience, or it could be a completely coded app on a, an iPad to share in a branch. And then lastly, we want to get our products to market within nine months. Now, to a hot firm like yourself or a startup, nine months is a bit ridiculous and long. But, you know, you know, the financial institution space, especially international companies, it can be years before you launch your product. So we've set a goal of nine months. In many cases, we're, we're hitting six to, to eight, but nine months is still quite good for a financial institution. And now Domenico talks about the machine that is Revolut product delivery. I would say compared to big companies, it's just that the whole process is much, much quicker. There's a lot fewer people involved in the product, in the process. So once you just go through a few uh, approval steps and confirmation from you know the testers, you're, you're basically good to go. The, the idea is that Releasing something for us, provided that all of the checkboxes are ticked for, uh, for, for compliance and risk and these kind of things, it's not that much of a problem for us. We can just start and then see how it goes from there and quickly change things. Actually, we really, um, we really try to make sure that the release process is quick uh, so that when something uh, is not optimal, we can just go and, you know, improve it. And in a week uh, or a few days, release a new version and, and fix um, the problems. The small number of steps involved in the decision making, uh, especially autonomy. The fact that product teams are uh, have a high degree uh, of uh, autonomy and and focus, and well, and let's add the people as well. Uh, when you have you know uh, smart, hardworking people that are highly committed and that have a high degree of uh, responsibility over what they what they deliver, and you add on top of that just a few steps of approval then you know you can you can do anything actually uh, it, it's really it's really fast to work on some features and and release new products the fourth and final part of the double diamond is the delivery phase this is where the solution is delivered it's tested and it's finally launched as louise mentioned big banks have traditionally held releases back tested and tested internally with a mindset that a product must be perfect before releasing. And and that fits with their brand and the increased scrutiny that they get from regulators. But it does come at a price. How do the rest of our experts view the process of testing and shipping? Hugo from Monzo. 
Yeah, there's different levels of, of testing. We do user testing, traditional user testing. Uh, in all, it's different, like flavors. Sometimes it's guerrilla testing. We go to Pret or whatever and just trying to hustle people to, to you know, split the bill or whatever. Sometimes we do it here in the office. And we have this thing we call testing Tuesdays, where pretty much every Tuesday we bring like eight or ten people and we, we ask them to, to perform um, certain actions in the app or new features. There's some of these uh, written in our, in our blog. And then there's the internal testing, right? Like we all use a, like a, how it's called, like bleeding edge kind of app. There is a build that happens multiple times during the day and you just install it and you have um, a bunch of like new unpolished uh, things to, to test. And then the community help us on that. Um, so we have this thing called Monster Labs, where we release things uh, early and often. So, for example, I don't know, joint accounts is something that we are working on. And we know that there's certain things that are still not polished enough, or there are almost 1 million people that are using, using Monster right now. But we know that there's like 20,000 people that would really like to try it. So we kind of give it to them first, knowing that they are more, more like resilient or more... Uh, I don't know how to say, like more comfortable with things break. Internal, uh, we have internal beta testers, uh, both for the retail and the, uh, and the business product. And after a few weeks, uh, usually these iterations are, are, are fast, like maybe even one or two weeks. We, we, we just, uh, change, um, some, some little stuff. And then we have an external, uh, beta community. Mm-hmm. There's a few thousand people that, uh, are part of this program and they, they get to test the new features, um, yeah, before the others. And then once that's out, uh, that's, that's good to go, uh, from the, uh, the community, we roll it out to our customers. One thing that came across very clearly from all of our experts was that to ship great product requires world-class designers, product managers, and engineers. We wanted to find out how our experts go about recruiting and hiring these rare individuals. Is the banking industry really attractive to designers right now? And what should we look for when hiring design talent? But the reality is some of the best designers I've worked with over, over my career has been just people that I get on really well with, you know? And so um, so I'm almost more focused on personality and how their fit would be in the organization because I, I do love the, the idea of educating and upskilling and training and mentoring uh, young designers. It's very difficult to find good, strong designers who can uh, have that personality to fit in in a large organization, an international company. Uh, but we've been quite successful finding uh, finding talent across BBVA's footprint. I would say the most uh, the most important thing probably is about being uh, really motivated to achieve your goal and really focused uh, and to be able to solve any problem. If if that's one thing I've seen uh, at Revolut is n- nobody will ever tell you I I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to do something or that's not my domain or something like that. We, we try to hire problem solvers and, uh, and it's about people that are not afraid of just saying, okay, I don't know this yet, but just give me some time. I'll figure out uh, what it is and then we can uh, solve this. So we need people who take action, people who fit with the company culture and message and people you actually want to spend time with. Let's hear more from Louise and Hugo. Our biggest challenge, though, is retention of talent. Uh-huh. 
lots of designers, creative people don't look at banks, particularly RBS, and go, I want to be in there. So we have to think about ways to recruit and retain those people. So we spend a lot of time in universities. Um, I do a lot of work in, in the Scottish community through my treasury role as a fintech envoy, talking to universities, talking to talent, looking at how do we retrain our own people, because uh, I think that's absolutely key, is how do we give people that are in operations roles, frontline roles, opportunities to move into them. And then we look at how do we actually constantly build that skill in. But what we're looking for is people who will always evolve through that process, will constantly look at ways of learning, but also challenge and drive those changes into the organisation. So from a recruitment perspective, we've done a lot of recruitment recently around the behavioural point. Mm -hmm. And then how do we help build the knowledge and build the capability? Uh, one area I would say, though, is that we're constantly looking for is also challenge. So people who will relentlessly challenge. We get people to pitch, we get people to talk about how they would solve problems, we get people to actually talk about specific situations and we even have people in the room who become a little bit obstructive through those pitches and processes to see how people react. So we, we try to, to mirror some of those day-to-day -day environmental things, including actually if something kind of feels okay with somebody, let's get them in. Let's try and test, see if we work for them and see if they work for us. There's a part that is that the problem we are solving is really, really juicy. Right? Like, I think that's it's, it's very tempting to say, hey, banks are, are broken, we are solving it. And that already attracts, I think, or at least causes like, curiosity on certain kind of people, which is cool. There's a part that is that the problem we are solving is really, really juicy. Right? Like I think that's it's it's very tempting to say, hey, banks are, are broken, we are solving it. And that already attracts, I think, or at least causes like curiosity on certain kind of people. Yeah. Which is cool. We are trying to solve something is it's really juicy and that everybody can see their family using it and themselves using it. I think and using it for good, right? So we, we have a very good company culture, but we are always evolving and growing. If you were to go and look at Glassdoor, the reviews we have are very, very good. So we are very inclusive. We try to like pay attention to small details, be fair with everybody. Like It's, it's a very good place and safe place to work. Um, I think that comes through. We have a cool brand as well. Let's, it's, it's there, right? Like It's a bit of a lucky strike, I think, in, in, many, in many areas, but... But it's cool. Like Monzo comes comes across as a like a friendly um, product that is close to to customers and and that makes you want to work there, right? Like I think a big big part is to be smart. Okay, like people that are like that have the raw intelligence of like, understanding the complexity of a problem and being able to like have, keep it in their heads and like all that kind of like analytical power. There's a lot about um, attention to detail. We are even a bit like. It's maniatic maybe about certain things and that works for us. So we try to, to have that kind of standards. So we don't, I don't know, for example, even small things like our design files. Every time I talk with someone in, in the industry or like in other startups, they, they cannot believe how well organized our design files are because it's something that we think kind of imposed from the beginning and we hire people that appreciate that kind of order and they maintain it, right? People that care about people and about users and about customers, um, 
in financial services, it's very common to find people that think on terms of like bad customers when they talk about debt and things like that. And we don't want that. So people that have empathy, that identify themselves with the problem and with the solution, that they are very good at what they do, <laughs> I would say. It seems, seems like a... Uh, like like a given, but people that are good at what they do. Um, my final question to my experts was whether they had any advice for new designers trying to get ahead. What have they learned now that they didn't know when they were starting out? They used to think that I have to know about all design uh, frameworks and theory, uh, same thing with development. And obviously, all of these things are uh, useful but they are only useful when you're in the situation when you need them. So if I read a book about a certain design framework, but at the moment I, I'm not working or I'm not implementing this, uh, this, this thing, uh, I will forget like 95% of it. And, uh, and is that going to be really useful in the future? I'm not sure. What I've seen is that if you really super focus and say, okay, what's what we're trying to do here? We're trying to solve a problem and just focus on that problem and how you want to provide a solution in the, you know, uh, simplest, most elegant way and, and to do it fast, uh, as fast as you can, then I, I would say that motivation is just overcomes everything else because then when you really have your goal clear you know where to to find the uh, the tools that you need to to solve the problem now do you know what has happened to me a couple of times the last few years is um, have you watched slamdog millionaire the film okay so let's not have spoilers here but the, the guy knows the answers because of different things that have happened in his life that many times happens to me now so I have a, a background uh, as an engineer. I studied computer science. I worked as a developer for a while. Um, and I worked in many different projects, many different things. And sometimes now, some of that knowledge comes back and it's like, oh, actually, that's useful in this case. I know how to solve this because I did this completely unrelated thing that there's a pattern there that tells me. Um, I, wouldn't expect, I wasn't expecting that. When I changed careers, I kind of assumed that all my knowledge about uh, computers would kind of potentially be irrelevant. So it's not necessarily counterintuitive, but I would say like the more you learn about different things, the better, even thing, even if are things that you think are useless or that don't make any sense or that don't have applied, like any application or that are going to be outdated or whatever. It's this whole balance in your head around what's logically right versus how do you drive cultural and behavioural change, you know, and banks are going through that at a pace they've never gone before. And, you know, you've got people nibbling away at the edges of banks and it's almost like a big tsunami of ants, really. And so the biggest thing I've learned is most of these challenges are behavioural and cultural and confidence rather than, you know, logic or intellect. I think the thing to, to think about as a young uh, designer is to really focus on what you love to do. I've, I've found success in, in my role and I love what I do because I'm doing things that are inherent and, and comfortable and, I, and I'm enjoying them. So I think, I think that's what I would impart on anybody starting out is just find those things you love to do. In conclusion, we've seen across this episode that fintechs and banks aren't so different in how they approach product design. Often the bigger banks are held back by the same old constraints. 
stakeholders, hierarchical decision-making, traditional structures, legacy infrastructure, and the fact that they're vital utilities offering services to millions of people and they have to protect their brands. And the new players? Well, they're attracting top talent and they've got the benefit of being relatively small and growing brands that are associated with the public testing of new features and functionality. But more and more, the overall approach to design is largely the same. And while the challenges are significant for the big players, I continue to be impressed by the common vision for design-led thinking, fast iterative development, and building solutions that really work for customers. As the big banks change and the new players scale, it's going to be really interesting to see how all this pans out. Exciting times. This wraps up the Banking Design Insights Show. This episode was hosted by me, Jason Bates, written by Laura Watkins, and produced by Laura Watkins and Ped Barisha. And it was, of course, edited by Michael Bailey. Thanks to Louise Smith, Rob Brown, Hugo Cornejo, and Domenico DeFano. We're part of 11FS, where we work with large financial services clients to bring small, talented teams together to launch truly digital ventures. To find out what we can do for you, visit 11fs.com or email hello at 11fs.com. If we hooked you with this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast client and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube for more exclusive content. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.